Welcome to another episode of System Shift, where we explore the latest ideas on how we can create a sustainable, thriving economy that puts people and nature at the center. Today, we are joined by the thought-provoking Kodjokoram, a lecturer at the School of Law at Birkbeck University of London, who also writes extensively on issues of law, race and empire. At a time when we need to avert the destruction of our planet is increasingly urgent, it's clear that we must deepen our understanding of the underlying structures that have shaped our current economic system. Kojo's work brilliantly examines the impacts of British colonial past on our present-day economic model, revealing the interconnectedness of race, empire and economics. His latest book, Uncommon Wealth, Britain and the Aftermath of Empire, is a groundbreaking work that sheds light on how the forgotten stories of empire and decolonization continue to shape our daily lives worldwide. I really recommend that read. By the mid-1960s, the British Empire, which over three centuries eventually spanned a quarter of the globe, was winding down. As former colonies assumed independence, Britain faced a dwindling of its global dominance. How could Britain retain its imperial advantages? Koji argues that the answer was simple. Borders for people of the empire, but not for the wealth of the empire. Koji takes apart the assumption that former British colonies around the world fell into inequality and insecurity because of their own dysfunctionality. He reminds us that the legacy of empire is not just the statues in city squares or patriotic songs, but it is in trade and economics. It's about creating wealth for some and impoverishment for others. Koji explains how British capital, debt and asset stripping continue to shape those countries, with the UK cultivating its reputation as a gateway to the world of offshore tax havens. He shows how decisions made as the British Empire crumbled are intimately connected to the inequality and insecurity that many of us are struggling with today. Kojo's extensive research offers a fresh perspective that challenges us to confront uncomfortable truths about exploitation of resources and people, encouraging us to think beyond traditional economic paradigms and embrace innovative and inclusive approaches that address the root causes of inequality and environmental degradation. Join us as we challenge the conventional wisdom and ignite hope for an economy that serves the well-being of people and the planet. So... Without further ado, a warm welcome to Kojo. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and so nice to have you here. And, and I was thinking, reading up on your work, you're taught about the empires and the colonialism in school, and you think that's part of history, but it's actually impacting us a lot today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that this is something that's started to see out of the academy over the last few years and much more into the public consciousness, imperialism and legacies of colonialism aren't kind of emblems of a long distant past, but are things that are very present in our society in the current moment. I think that, you know, particularly since the kind of global responses to the Black Lives Matter protests that we saw with protests in every continent in the world, a lot of those protests also transitioned into demands around the way in which different countries confronted their colonial history. Um, this was very much the case in Belgium, in Holland, in France, and also in the United Kingdom, um, where I'm from. 
But one of the things that I wanted to kind of push the conversation forward in relation to a book that I published last year, which is called Uncommonwealth, written in the aftermath of empire. And this book really tried to show how, whilst the recent conversation has talked about um, the relationship between imperialism and the symbolic society that we navigate today, um, you know, what are the statues in our public squares? What are the streets of our roads called? Um, what are our institutions called? A lot about the kind of cultural and symbolic legacy of empire. I wanted to connect it a lot more with the economy, with the way in which inequality continues to escalate in our current moment, and the way in which we continue to consume and devastate the natural resources of the world, um, leading to the kind of environmental catastrophe that we're facing at the moment. That kind of hard material legacy of imperialism, the way it influences our legal system, the way it influences our political system, and the way it influences the structure of our economy is something that I don't think had been discussed enough. And I think that that's an element that we're starting to wrestle with as we face the kind of compounding crises of capitalism in 2023. So you're actually bringing back the debate about colonialism to the root causes and why it actually started. I mean, the Brits didn't go around the world forcing people to read Shakespeare. They actually wanted to extract something from these countries normally. Absolutely. The, the, you know, we ended up, at least in Britain, really becoming quite obsessed in a kind of trivial culture wars debate around the legacy of empire, um, where um, the debate around empire was about what songs are sung in the last man of the prom. Should we sing War Britannia? Should we not? TV shows are shown on the BBC. You know, should there be a cancellation of Faulty Towers? Is that imperialist? Is it not? And, you know, I spent the whole debate really thinking that nobody was motivated to get on the ship in the 17th and 18th century and sail across the ocean in order to share, you know, faulty towers with people. You know, whether you want to like it or not, you know, this is not the, the driving motivation for imperialism. The driving motivation of the British Empire, as it is with all empires, you know, nothing explicit about the British Empire, even the European empires, is the same for the Songhai Empire in West Africa or the Mongol Empire. The driving motivation for all imperialism is material. The desire to extract resources from across the world and transfer them to the home territory of the empire. And this is the real legacy of the British Empire that I don't think that we've wrestled with significantly. Because what perhaps is significant about the British Empire, perhaps even more than its European counterparts in France and in Belgium is that it really put in place the building blocks of modern-day contemporary capitalism. The English common law system is still the system of law that so much corporate activity is navigated through, even up until today. The City of London is still the center of finance for so many companies and so much wealth and asset transition, even up until the contemporary day. And so this legacy of empire, I think, is something that was getting ignored perhaps by a deliberate attempt to try and make the debate about wrestling with our very real and very recent history of empire as well. Um, you know, I think a lot of the kind of culture wars debate about imperialism made it seem like this is an issue just about plantation slavery and guys in the 17th century with red coats and muskets running around shooting each other. The reality is formal colonization only ended in the latter half of the 20th century, you know, in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, 
these are the decades when places around the world are going formal legal decolonization. And so that's a very recent history that has very real impacts on the way in which our world works today. Because actually the material and economic parts of colonization actually didn't end then either because these countries were indebted or had structures in place which extracted the wealth all the way until today. Absolutely. I think what I try and do um, when I talk about this is to really reframe our understandings of, first of all, what formal decolonization was. This process in the latter half of the 20th century, um, where countries like India and Jamaica and Nigeria and Kenya and Ghana went through the process of transitioning from being colonial subjects into being sovereign nation states. And so all of a sudden, huge swathes of territory all around the world that didn't have the ability to elect their own representative governments, and therefore, in terms of the flow of capitalism around the world, didn't have the ability to elect leaders who might be able to pass labor regulations or tax demands or trade policies that might interrupt the flow of capital across the world, suddenly could do that. They suddenly did have their own governments, their own heads of state, their own flags, their own anthems, and their own ability to interrupt the flow of capitalism. And so that is a significant challenge to how capitalism functions that occurs in the kind of middle to late half of the 20th century. And what is the response of global capitalism? I think that that is the key point of understanding so much of the inequality that wrestles with the world today. Because what I would argue in Commonwealth, and I think if you look at the stories of decolonization, you can see this played out, is that following these countries winning their sovereignty, winning their ability to be able to control how assets move in and out of their jurisdiction, we had a counter revolution, a counter response. This is the kind of deep story of neoliberalism that allows global capital to protect its interests against the potentially damaging challenge of these new sovereign governments around the world. And that part of colonization, the ability to control the flow of finance and assets around the world, is something that never went away and was in fact reinforced after formal decolonization. And that was actually the root cause of the colonization in its first place. I mean, just look at Britain, for example, between 1815 and 1900, you had an enormous expansion of the amounts of sugar and coal and cotton that was important to the UK. Actually, if you would transfer that to how much land that was exploited for this import, you arrive at the figure of 200 million hectares of land outside the UK mm -hmm. that was used every year to feed the UK or its industry or its capitalists. So and that's like eight times bigger than the whole country. So. Uh, this is an, an enormous amount of resources that was extracted. How come this could happen? How did Britain go about to actually create this enormous exploitation of the rest of the world? What made it possible? I mean, so many different elements, because the story of the British Empire, despite the fact that this is something that's actually not very well known in Britain itself, you know, is one of the more remarkable stories in terms of the history of humanity. British Empire is the largest empire that's ever existed in human history, in terms of territory, in terms of populations, in terms of wealth, as you just illustrated. And it's a history that, like I mentioned, came to a close 
very, very recently. It's only 1997 with Hong Kong transitioning back to Chinese sovereignty that that's seen as the kind of formal end of the British Empire. And, you know, there's, of course, a debate to see how much of that still continues, or we can talk even about the role of British overseas territories, essentially colonies by another name, even up until today, and the role that they play in the offshore world, places like the Cayman Islands, places like the British Virgin Islands, and we'll hopefully return to that conversation a little bit later. But in relationship to how Britain expand all across the world and become so dominant, I think one key element in terms of understanding how capitalism works today that we need to hold on to when we think about the British Empire is remembering how much of the British Empire wasn't actually administered and advanced by the state, but was pushed forward by a conveyor belt of private corporations. This is something that really pushed the British Empire ahead of some of its European rivals, like the Belgian or the French empires, which were more state-based projects. But with the British Empire, so much of the kind of dirty work of imperialism was done by the Hudson Bay Company in North America, or the Royal Niger Company in West Africa that founded Nigeria, or the Royal Africa Company before that. Um, you might think of the Levant Company. Um, you might think of the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. And of course, you have to think about the company that historians still consider to be the largest multinational corporation to have ever existed, even in the current age of um, Amazon and Google and Walmart. Of course, I'm referring to the East India Company, um, you know, which was the de facto sovereign for the Indian subcontinent, stretching all the way to you know having the monopoly of the trade in China. Probably the largest corporation, and perhaps definitely the most historically influential corporation of the history of capitalism. And so these companies show the intertwinement between the interests of corporate capitalism and the interests of particularly British imperialism, which really helped put in place the building blocks for the world that we have today, where all these multinational corporations seem like they're essentially unaccountable to the pressures of mass democracy. Look at the East India Company, for example. They had actually twice the number of soldiers as the UK army had. So these were not just companies. They were charter companies that actually got a lot of power from the state, mm -hmm. policing, even law implementation, and having military, for example. So these were given enormous power. And what did they use this power for? I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, these essentially private companies were de facto sovereigns in huge swathes of the territory. You think of the Hudson Bay Company in North America or the East India Company on the Indian subcontinent. They undertook tasks which nowadays we think of the preserve of governments. They arrested and convicted people. They collected taxes. They waged wars, as you mentioned, with, with the size of the military um, that they were able to employ. And they were key actors in significant historical events. Think about the role of the East India Company in something as dramatic as the Opium Wars that's often seen as a war between Britain and China. But in fact, it's it's the interests of the East India Company that had the monopoly over the trade of um, opium in China that really drove the, the conflict and its subsidiaries, um, which include several companies that are significant actors in the global economy even up until today. And so the way in which these companies, which, as you mentioned, required a royal charter in order to come into existence. So prior to the Registration Act, you couldn't just register a company like you can do now. You needed the grant of, of the state in order to come into existence. 
And so that kind of careful relationship between the British state and these ostensibly private companies is very much in existence at the very origin. But I think the fact that they are private companies did a couple of things. It first allowed them to operate without the same obligations that a state has in terms of its international relations. And it also played the crucial role historically of kind of shielding the state from the crimes and kind of moral judgments of a lot of the issues that happened in these colonies. And so the story of the British state, the history curriculum that we all learn in Britain, is a kind of internal story of Britain, of the Tudors and the gunpowder plot and the world wars. It's not the story of what happens in India or what happens in Iran, because that's the story of the East India Company. What happens in Iran is the story of the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. They're somehow outsourced from the national narrative, and I think that has a great role in facilitating the amnesia we have about empire, even up until today. This amnesia is so strong, like uh, we see a re-emergence of this tactic in Iraq, for example, after the invasion, where you had private subcontractors running security and other operations full of human rights violations, but you could also then blame the company again. Absolutely. Yeah, this kind of dual revolving door that we see between the interests of the state and the interests of the companies plays such a crucial role in understanding how um, so much violence and so much damage continues to be facilitated even up until today. I think when we want to talk about the aftermath of the empire and the way that this continues to influence our world today, I think we really want to wrestle with this question of what happened to these companies after formal decolonization. And so, you know, to be crude about it, one of the great benefits of empire was that these companies could operate across multiple different territories, but under one jurisdictional umbrella. You know, if in the 19th century, you operated from Hong Kong to India, to London, to Jamaica, to the Cayman Islands. You operated under the umbrella of the British Empire. Once you have decolonization and all of these places start to get their own governments and their own potential ability to interrupt your business interests, you now exist under four, five, six, seven different jurisdictions. And so what is the response of the interest of private corporations to this potential threat. I think, you know, we look at the story of, say, the Anglo-Iranian oil company and its response to the election of Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran in the 1950s as an example for how these private corporations were protected from the dangers of mass democracy, particularly in the former colonized world. And so what does that do? That helps create the world that we have today where so many of these companies appear beyond the reach of accountability, not just for democracies in the global south, but potentially even for democratic will in the very heart of empire, places like the United Kingdom, places like the United States, where they first emerged. Hang on there, because maybe not every of our listeners is familiar with the story about the Anglo-Iranian oil company. I mean, many of these old companies they actually are still alive today. Like Unilever started off with the Lever Brothers in Nigeria and the Niger Company, and then mm. British Petroleum has its origin in Anglo-Iranian oil company. So many of these colonial pasts have just been transferred to the modern company. So let's stick to Anglo-Iranian oil, where a private individual or a company got the right to, for 60 years, have the sole right to explore oil in large swaths of land in Iran. 
Mm-hmm. And then Mossadegh had a democratically elected government who wanted to say, listen, we we want some of the profits. And when they refused, they, they just nationalized the company, offering 25% of the profit as compensation. Uh-huh. But how did the UK and with the help of the US then respond to this? Like the Iranian people, the Persian people wanted to have the wealth from their lands also to themselves and not only being exported. What was the reaction by the UK and the US? So this is one of the, the crucial, I think, stories of the kind of post-war world that is unknown well enough, um, particularly in the United Kingdom, despite it being the main actor in this whole. Um, <laughs> Maybe that's why. Absolutely. But like you mentioned, the Anglo-Iranian oil company started by William Knox Darcy at the turn of the 20th century, enjoyed the monopoly over the um, cultivation of oil in the Abadan region of you know what Britain then called Persia. And, you know, this was part of Britain's kind of informal empire, places like Argentina, places like China, the world under the economic dominance of the British Empire. And, you know, the Anglo-Iranian oil company profited from that very well. And of course, they always had this kind of cozy, intimate relationship with the British state, even, you know, supplying the oil for the British war efforts and, and the world wars. There was often a revolving door between executives of the Anglo-Iranian oil company and uh, ministers of, of parliament. And this is going to be crucial for the story of what happens following the Anglo-Iranian oil crisis. But as you mentioned, there is uh, the election of Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran, who is a kind of social democratic prime minister who seeks to use the wealth from the oil refineries in order to fund essentially a welfare state in, in Iran, um, housing, welfare, schooling, education. And when he's unable to renegotiate the terms of the very exploitative deal that they have with the Anglo-Iranian oil company, he uses those powers of sovereignty in order to nationalize those oil refineries and to claim that ultimately the, the oil is on the land of, of Iran, as the democratic representative of the Iranian people, they have the right to use that oil in the way that they see fit. Now, what's really crucial about this story is who the government was in the United Kingdom at this time. Now, the government in the United Kingdom at the start of the Anglo-Iranian oil crisis is the government that's nowadays canonized as probably the most progressive government in English history, the Labour government of Clement Attlee, and most crucially, the Labour government that created the welfare state themselves, created the NHS, you know, building of council housing, expansion of welfare provisions, and maybe most crucially for this story, the government that nationalized huge swathes of their own economy in order to fund (laughs) their own welfare state. And so you might think, looking at those facts on the table, that there will be some understanding from the Attlee government as to the project Mossadegh was trying to advance in Iran, but this was not the response of the Adli government. Um, they very much had that kind of blindness of a lot of those post-war British governments where they tried to have a social democratic welfare state at home, but continue imperial exploitation abroad. And so they threw their weight entirely behind the Anglo-Iranian oil company. First, they sought to get a UN Security Council to wage war on Iran for the crime of having expropriated the properties of the company. That failed. Um, Then they took Iran to the ICJ, the recently created International Court of Justice, in order to try and declare Mossadegh's act illegal. The ICJ kind of turned the classic British kind of dual step 
of privatizing and outsourcing its imperial interests against Britain. And the ICJ essentially said, well, this is a court set up between conflicts between two nation states. You know, this is not a conflict between two nation states. It's a conflict between one nation state, Iran, and one private company, the anglo Iranian yeah. Oil Company. You know, even though we know it's always, there was much more intertwinement between the state and the company, the ICJ said, no, you always say that these companies are separate from the state. We're going to take you at your word and say this is <laughs> not within our jurisdiction. And so with all kind of legal routes exhausted, unfortunately, the um, British government been replaced by the second Churchill government. And as I mentioned earlier, it's significant because Winston Churchill was once a paid lobbyist for the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. So that revolving door you can see very clear and also illustrates how across the different political traditions, whether it's the left or whether it's the right, there was a unified commitment in the British state towards protecting the interests of their colonial companies. The Churchill government continued the aggressive policy of the Atlee government, and they were successful in basically convincing the Eisenhower administration in the United States that if Mossadegh was allowed to do this, he would lead to a wave of communism spreading across the Middle East and North America, and the United Kingdom and the United States collaborated in a coup d'etat, now we know codenamed Operation Ajax, which removed Mossadegh from power, um, placed him under house arrest until his death, and put in place a new prime minister who was much more agreeable to the interests of the Anglo-Iranian oil company and returned to them their oil refineries. As you illustrated at the start of that question, that's most significant for understanding how our world works today because the Anglo-Iranian oil company did not disappear with the end of colonization. They did think that a coup d'etat was a little bad for the brand name. <laughs> you know, it's not really good for kind of corporate reputation. And so it was time after the Anglo-Iranian oil crisis for a bit of a rebrand. And they then became first British Petroleum and now most commonly known as BP. And that's significant for understanding our world today, because when we look at the current energy crisis that so many people are wrestling with in not just the global south, but even in the United Kingdom as well, where huge swathes of the population are unable to pay their heating bills, are wrestling with choosing between heating their homes or feeding their children. We have BP recording record profits year after year and saying that the energy crisis has turned their company into a cash machine. And so when we think about that role that they play in the contemporary energy crisis, as well as some of the environmental impact that BP has had. Think about the Deepwater Horizon disaster, for example, one of the largest environmental disasters on record, the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, we can go back to that moment of the confrontation between the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company and the Mossadegh government and think about whether the world, even places like the United Kingdom, have really benefited from the decision of the British governments to protect their colonial companies against the democratic will of people in the global south, in this case, Iran. Yeah, I mean, if you talk about not only BP had record profits, you see most of the oil companies actually had record profits last year. And uh, you have that at the same time as you have an energy cost crisis for normal people. And you see also that in the last quarter of 2022, you had a significant increase in corporate profits in general, while they are pushing back on salaries, 
being on par with inflation, saying, oh, if you have your salaries according to inflation, you will have an even worse inflation story. But actually, larger and larger part of corporate turnover has turned into profits for the people owning them. So this inequality you see here is aggravated and the energy crisis is more a crisis of extreme greed rather than actually energy crisis, I would say. Absolutely, you know, and we can see that that kind of protection that the state gave to the colonial energy companies in the Anglo-Iranian oil company isn't wholly removed from the protection that the state has given to these energy companies in the midst of this energy crisis where there has been demands for really aggressive windfall taxes on these profits that these companies are making that states have been very reluctant to really roll out and implement. We can think about the way in which companies like BP have often been cited as one of the largest tax avoiding firms that operate within the British jurisdiction, um, often getting the tax rebate from the state despite these record profits being um, registered. And so when we think about that moment where there was this confrontation between, say, decolonial sovereignty from these newly elected governments in the former colonies and the interests of the corporate companies who did so much to profit from empire, we think about that moment of confrontation, we can really think about what would have been in the interest of creating a more equitable, sustainable world. Wouldn't have been to support these colonial corporations, and we've seen how that's played out over the subsequent decades, or would it have been to try and allow all people around the world to have that ability to create the type of economies that they wish through the election of their own sovereign governments. To clarify this statement here, well, yeah. you think there's a clear link between the colonial logic in protecting the oil companies and the lack of progress on changing our energy system. Do you see a link? Absolutely, not just changing our energy system, but also the kind of disintegration of the entire edifice of kind of social democracy that places like the UK, this is very acute. There's been a real collapse of that post-war consensus welfare state that the Andy government did so much work to build in the United Kingdom. I often um, I use in, in on Commonwealth this analogy that the kind of Andy government in trying to create a welfare state, a state where corporations had to exist in relationship to the demand of the mass of democracy, um, at home, whilst allowing them to be as aggressive as possible in the colonies, I use this, this analogy in the book of it's almost like, you know, having a dog and saying to the dog, I want you to behave in the house, I don't want you to bite the kids, don't tear up the sofa, but when we go outside of the house, you can bite anybody's kids, you can destroy the bins, and you can act as wild as you want, and then being surprised when a couple of decades later, you have a dog that's tearing up the sofa and biting the kids inside your own house. And this is very much, I think, what the Adley government tried to do by taming the, the aggressive corporate profiteering at home, whilst allowing it to run free in places like Iran, as they put into place the building blocks for the erosion of the very welfare state and very system of equality that they were trying to create in places like the United Kingdom. Just a reminder of the current link still today. Some figures, they're a bit older from 2007, but anyway, the EU, including UK, the US and Japan, the annual average net influx to our part of the world is 12.6 gigatons of raw material, 34 exajoule of energy, 560 million hectares of land exploitation, and 247 million 
work years every year being exploited and used to our part of the world, to the small part of the world. Mm. So these processes are still very much ongoing, but using the neoliberal logic of exploitation. And a crucial part of that, I think you mentioned before, is the tax havens. I think let's go there because that's a key part of this colonialist logic. And uh, it's not new. It's over 200 years old. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the kind of focuses that I put in on Commonwealth is on that aftermath of empire being attached to the financial and legal systems that dominate our world today. And at least in terms of the British story, you know, it's not a coincidence that according to the Tax Justice Network, the top three corporate tax havens in the world all just happen to be British overseas territories, which is essentially a fancy word for, say, colonies. So they were colonies during the era of imperialism and then have reframed their branding to British overseas territories. You know, here we're talking about the British Virgin Islands, Bermuda, the Cayman Islands. You can also think about places like Guernsey and Jersey. You can think about a lot of these crown dependencies have really become the centers of what is known as the offshore world, the world in which global capitalism and wealthy individuals, profitable corporations can hide their assets, hide their profits outside of the purview of sovereign governments and the tax demands that they might place upon them. Now, we use the word tax havens, and I think that that, that is useful for, for illustrating just how much money is being lost in these corporate tax havens, protected, sheltered from being redistributed to create a more equitable society every year. But the idea of a tax haven, I think, is kind of a simplification for what these offshore centers actually do, because they influence our world in so much more than simply hiding money that should be taxed. They also allow wealthy individuals to be able to continue to own assets and to have interest in assets whilst maintaining a veil of secrecy. So that kind of secrecy protection that they provide is just as important as their ability to not allow you to be taxed. The fact that you can be an owner or have an interest in property or in particular companies and that not have to be declared if those properties are registered within these jurisdictions. And it also allows people to use the wealth that they have in these companies to be able to then drive up the costs of assets in all countries around the world, even somewhere like the United Kingdom, which is seen as supposedly the home of this offshoring world. And so we know that over 100,000 properties in the United Kingdom, residential properties, I may stress, are purchased through the vehicle of offshore companies. And so this is a way in which some of the very wealthiest people in the world are able to drive up the price of the most secure human need that we have, the need for housing, drives that up and beyond the affordability of everyday people in the United Kingdom. This is part of the reason why if you're a teacher, firefighter, a nurse, even a doctor in cities like London, you cannot afford the price of housing in the 21st century. You cannot afford to buy a house and to have some security for you and your family. The way in which these offshore centers have been used to drive up the price of assets is something that we really have to wrestle with if we want to create a more equal society. And for listeners who want to know more about asset inflation and how that is interlinked with the current monetary system and financial systems, you can listen to the episode with Anne Pettifor where we talk about money generation and debt creation and how that works with the private bank system. I'm thinking 
listening to you now, it's actually not only tax havens. They are human rights abuse financing havens. They are illegal weapon deals havens. Okay. They are criminal drug networks havens. Oh. They are the vehicle that makes it possible to extract profit from all unethical behaviors on the planet. I mean, one building in Cayman Island has 18,000 companies, according to Obama. That's absurd. That's clearly not a, s- a serious business. Absolutely. I think that we can't really understand the emergence of the so-called offshore world without connecting it to shifts in the onshore world, as we might describe it, which is, of course, the shift towards decolonization. And we take the Cayman Islands, for example. Um, The Cayman Islands, during the era of British imperialism, was not even governed as an independent colony. It was governed as part of Jamaica. It was seen as so insignificant to Britain's colonial interests in what was then called the old British West Indies. But with Jamaica gaining decolonization in the early 1960s, the Cayman Islands splits off from Jamaica and starts to become this new focal point for this offshore world. It starts to pass uh, its own constitution and its own Companies Act that invites companies around the world to register their interests in this territory underneath that veil of secrecy that we mentioned a little bit earlier. And also, as we get the City of London become the centre for offshore finance through the development of what's known as the Euro-Dollars market. And so the Euro-Dollars market was dollars that were outside of the jurisdiction of the United States that wanted to be protected by banks, um, despite the fact that this was essentially in contravenement of the Bretton Woods regulations that have been implemented, the City of London using that network of imperial finance accumulation becomes the center of the euro dollars market and then the ultimate place of protection for these offshore dollars that were building up in the city of london to really be protected was to these emerging offshore centers places like the cayman islands and then the british virgin islands bermuda and other territories in the old british west indies now these places remain British overseas territories today, which means that they are not independent countries. They are not different countries from Britain, even though we often talk about them as though they are. You know, we often say, you know, all all these companies are registered in the Cayman Island. This is these remote tropical paradises, you know, who could do anything about them? But we know that the British government, which has ultimate sovereignty over these territories, can intervene in overseas territories when it wants to, we can just ask the people of the Chagos Islands how it can treat its overseas territories. You know, the entire population there was expelled in order to build an American military base. And so thinking about the interests of the 21st century, I would say that if the British government is able to expel an entire population from its overseas territories in order to create a military base, it can intervene in these offshore financial centers in order to allow for greater transparency and greater accountability for the operations that exist within these jurisdictions. So if we would have a UK government that wanted to abolish these overseas tax havens that under their jurisdiction, would that be possible? And how would they go about it? Yeah, absolutely. Ultimately, so despite the fact that they have a kind of an independent governor and their own legislative councils that allow them a certain amount of autonomy, especially in relationship to internal jurisdictional issues. Ultimate sovereignty in British overseas territories continues to reside in Westminster in terms of foreign policy and in terms of who makes the final decisions if they really want to. 
I think that history of the Chagos Islands shows they can intervene in these areas when they want to. They've also intervened in the Turk and Caicos Islands very recently as well. And so if they wanted to force greater transparency and greater accountability in these territories and to force them to agree to something like the global minimum tax rate campaign that's being advanced by a number of countries all around the world, not just countries in the global south who've been pushing for greater accountability for these tax havens, but also now even places like the Biden administration in the United States, the United Kingdom government could push that forward. But that's not something that we've seen a great appetite for by successive British governments over the past few years. But then these territories are actually exploiting the power of the British administrative legal system to do their business, and the UK actually is not using its power to defend the public interest and the interest of environment and non-exploitation. Absolutely. You know, the key selling point of these overseas territories in the aftermath of decolonization was saying to all of the asset holders that were fleeing the colonies because of the shift towards decolonization, because now you have native governments, local governments, that might be able to hold them to more accountability than the former colonial governments had done. These asset holders were fleeing areas like Ghana, Kenya, all of these territories, Nigeria, and were looking for a place to leave their assets. And what the overseas territories were able to do to attract them was to present them as somewhere that was both in the United Kingdom and outside the United Kingdom at the same time. And so it was in the United Kingdom because it had the access to the legal experts and financial experts of the City of London, because it operated with the English common law system, because it had all of the refinement of the classic British West Indies, but it was also outside of Britain and outside of the decolonized world in terms of it's not subject to mass democracy. It's not going to have your assets be seized by a government that's been elected by a popular movement or a strong labor movement and that's looking to expropriate resources in the way that Mossadegh or Nkrumah or others did around the world. And so that inside-outside position towards the British state has really been exploited by places like the Cayman Islands and the British Virgin Islands for their own benefit, but not for the benefit for the sustainability and equality of the rest of the world. When I listen to you, I have this uneasy feeling that from slavery, where we exploited people and brought them under our jurisdiction, and when we had colonialism, where we actually managed other countries or had outsourced chartered companies to manage other territories, we now have a neoliberal exploitation following exactly the same logic, exploiting people, but using financial means and debts and trade agreements and intellectual property rights. So this endless exploitation of people and the planet and the worldviews that permit that. If we want to fight this, how can we unite? Because now there is conflicts between different groups and different countries, between different groups and minorities in each country. How can we unify against this logic of exploitation and uh, destruction? Yeah, I mean, this question of how do we create a unified transnational opposition towards this kind of aftermath of imperial financial interest is really the question that drove me to create and to write Uncommonwealth um, as a book. 
I felt that the debate around decolonization, not just in Britain, but I think across the West, has started to become very divisive and it started to become very us versus them. And it's had a lot to do with kind of imperial guilt and privilege. And it had started to pit different exploited groups against each other. And I felt that this was doing the work of the imperial aftermath for it in terms of if you're saying to working people in say the north of England whose heating bills are escalating beyond their ability to pay whilst a company like BP enjoys record profits that they are in opposition to people in the Abadan region of Iran or these other territories in the you know in the Niger Delta where these oil companies are accumulating huge amounts of wealth from mining oil from those territories if you say that those two groups of people are in opposition to each other the only people who benefit are the oil companies when in fact I think what kind of material understanding of the aftermath of empire shows us is that the same systems of exploitation are worsening both of their lives. Now, of course, there are differences. You know, it's it's more acute if you're in the Niger Delta and you are being removed from your lands and you're facing paramilitary organizations, kidnapping labor movement leaders and leading to people's real death, you know, that's perhaps more extreme than if you're unable to pay your bills and unable to feed your children, you know, in the north of England or in the post-industrial world in the West. But it's the same process, the same system that's damaging both of your lives, helping people understand that the importance of learning about history of empire and the history of decolonization in the West isn't to show that you're a good person, isn't to be like, look how good I am, you know, I'm learning about what's going on in these other countries to be morally superior. It's to understand the system of exploitation that is going to be coming for you in due course. I often say in the book, this idea that what happened in the aftermath of empire and the colonies happened there first and worst, but it did put in place the building blocks for a lot of the issues that we're wrestling with even now in the very heart of the former imperial world, the United Kingdom in 2023. So how can you integrate this with the environmental struggle, with the social struggle and unite people? Do you have any ideas about how we could go about? Absolutely. I think it's about, you know, making people realize that this kind of apocalyptic challenge of, of the climate crisis that we're facing and wrestling with the significance of the planetary damage that we're doing to the only sustainable planet that we know that can maintain human life is something that isn't just the problems of mothers in Bangladesh or you know people off the Gulf of Guinea who might be at the forefront of this crisis, that this is going to be an issue for people even in London and Washington and Berlin and Paris um, who might consider themselves quite protected and isolated from this crisis at the moment. But those same systems, that planetary devastation is going to impact them. And it's also going to be a driver of that human catastrophe as well. These crises are interlocking. The poly crisis of migration crisis, of economic crisis, of climate crisis, all of them are connected with each other and all of them are going to have to be faced by all of us wherever we live. Um, very shortly. And I don't think we can face them without unpacking and delinking ourselves from the aftermath of imperialism. So let's say a listener has been listening to you today and they feel, yes, I agree with this worldview, the analysis of the empire, and I feel very motivated to go ahead and take action and do good stuff. So what else than 
demanding the abolishment of the tax havens uh, could you do? I end the book by really illustrating a lot of immediate, tangible changes in terms of unpacking the aftermath of this legal and financial legacy of empire that could be demanded. This is more um, relevant to perhaps the British context and British legal system, but maybe has relevance to other countries in their jurisdiction. And so I think that one of the dangers of the decolonization debate is that it was becoming increasingly abstracted. We would talk about decolonizing our mind, decolonizing our perspectives, decolonizing our ideas, and this is all significant and really important, but something that could be demanded by individuals in places like the United Kingdom is the removal of something like the non-dom tax status. Um, so the non-dom tax status, which has been in the news recently because of its relationship to Rishi Sunak, is a tax status that benefits the wealthiest people in the country, and it is a direct hangover of the aftermath of empire. It's part of the reason why UK has this idiosyncratic tax status is that it was put into place in 1799 when Winnipeg tried to bring in the income tax to protect um, those who had properties in the colonies from not having to face that income tax and to continue to encourage that imperial entrepreneurialism. This status could be removed by a government tomorrow and that could help create a more equitable world. And for countries that doesn't have that specific, maybe like a wealth tax or other taxes on property would be an alternative. Then. Absolutely. Also thinking about going back to that story of the Anglo-Iranian oil company and the protection the multinational corporations um, received in that aftermath of decolonization. Um, you know, this was a quite crude protection in that story in terms of a coup d'etat. But over the following decades, it starts to become a little bit more sophisticated with things like structural adjustment programs, conditional loan agreements, the use of odious debt, the use of investor state dispute resolution tribunals. A lot of these legal tactics could be abolished. You know, the debt impact that's devastating sovereign governments around the world and stopping them being able to pass laws that are in the interests of their people, not in the interests of global cooperation, that could be removed and that could be abolished to create a more equitable world. And so policies like this are issues that individuals and groups could mobilize and organize around and start demanding. And I think that could help us lead to a more sustainable world in the future. Well, thank you so much for this talk. It was really interesting and I hope uh, many of our listeners got some new perspectives and some new thoughts about our history and our future and how they are interlinked. So for this, I'm very grateful. Thank you so much, Kojan. Thank you so much for having me, Carl. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs>